Hello everyone, this is Craig here. Today we have another episode of Inner Experience. Haven't had one of those in a while, uh, but I just wanted to mention that Acid Horizon has some new projects on the way. You might already know that we have been working with Zero Books and Repeater Books. We will be publishing a series on the Zero Books imprint called Zero Horizons, where we will be publishing a plethora of books, many of which will be in the scope of our own research interests, but also beyond that as well. Also, Acid Acid Horizon will soon likely have a brick-and-mortar DIY space. There's going to be more on that soon, so watch this space for more information about that. But I also wanted to say that these kinds of things can't happen without your support, whether it's supporting us on Patreon or purchasing something from the merch store, Crit Drip, which many of you have done, and for the first time I saw Crit Drip in the wild unexpectedly, so that was fun. Today on the show, we have professor and writer Vernon W. Sisney, who we had on about a year and a half ago. He's come back to talk to us about the devil, his history and biography. So a lot of fun to be had. Okay, let's go. This is your inner experience, the show on Acid Horizon, where we explore the more mysterious terrains of philosophy, psychology, theology, mysticism, and other species of thought. Today with us on the show, we are privileged once again to have with us Vernon W. Sisney of Vernon W. Sisney fame. You probably already know him if you follow us and our comrades on Twitter. Vernon teaches at Gettysburg College in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, and he is also known for his philosophical writing, namely his book, Deleuze and Derrida, Difference and the Power of the Negative. He's also one of the translators of uh, Pierre Klosowski's Living Currency, which I'm currently reading for the first time right now. But we have brought him here today to discuss a more insidious topic, perhaps the most insidious topic, which is the devil, Lucifer, Satan, and the many other monikers by which the Prince of Darkness is known. And this is um, not a gratuitous tangent for us. Uh, not only does our interest in the work of late 20th century French philosophy overlap, but it seems that my interest in myth and image and perhaps our collective interest here on the podcast and the ways the figure of the devil is deployed, perhaps as a political device, intersects with Vernon's own interest in this topic. So we invited him on to talk about his lecture series, which is now available for purchase on various platforms like Audible, called the Devil, a Biography. And our hope today is to highlight some of the shared points of interest and perhaps articulate some of the other themes connected to our respective research areas. Vernon, welcome to Inner Experience and Acid Horizon. Thank you. Uh, thank you all so much for having me back. This is uh, a pleasure and an honor to be here. So The first time that I heard you speak was on uh, Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. And then, of <clears> course, <throat> we stole you from them for one of our shows. And then <laughs> you had gone back recently to talk about something else. And that's when I heard that you had did this lecture series. And now, as I understand it, your background, well, one of the things that you did on both of our shows and, and, and twice on Machinic Unconscious Happy Hours sort of give your introduction uh, 
or the way that you were introduced to the world of thought and the world of philosophy. And, and it seemed that your encounter with religion, Christianity in particular, is a big part of what got you into this. And now I'm not going to have you recap your whole biography again, but maybe we can kind of dig into the portion of your biography that specifically involves religion. And as I understand it, if I'm not mistaken, you do some work with either like Jewish studies or early Christian studies, that, that sort of thing. That's part of your repertoire, correct? Yes, yes, yes. I, uh, I'm on the Jewish Studies Committee. I actually, I, I just was honored by the uh, Jewish Studies Committee with the Berg Myers uh, Award for Teaching Excellence in Jewish Studies oh, um, awesome. at Gettysburg College. So, uh, so yeah. So I, I got into Jewish Studies in grad school, sort of tangentially, uh, through Deleuze, actually, interestingly enough, and then. Um, and then I was asked to be a TA for one of my friends at, at Purdue, uh, Dan Frank, who does an intro to Judaic studies uh, every year, I think. And he asked me to be his TA. So I got I got pretty versed in, um, you know, uh, you know, a survey sort of cover of it. But, you know, uh, the history of, of Jewish thought and uh, found it really fascinating. So, so yeah, I, 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 I teach a course every couple of years called Jewish Thought and the Enlightenment, mm -hmm. which focuses not surprisingly perhaps on, well, we start with Maimonides, who's a, you know, a medieval, a late medieval thinker, but someone who is formative for Enlightenment, you know, Jewish responses to, uh, sorry, Jewish responses to the Enlightenment. They are you know, working in the the shadow of Maimonides, including Spinoza. Uh, and then from there, we go to uh, Spinoza and Mendelssohn and Solomon Maimon. So, yeah. Great. And, and now, as I understand it, you, your experience is quite similar to mine. You grew up in a milieu, you know, at a, at a time in, in, in the late 20th century where we had an explosion in the United States of, of various sects of like Protestant and evangelical religions. I mean, growing up in, um, you know, I kind of grew up in, on like a residential farmland that was becoming like a developed suburban sort of area. You know, it wasn't uncommon to have all, people of all kinds of faiths come in. So um, you got a sense that you know, there, there's this plethora really of, of religions and sects that were around me, not to mention my own sort of mixed Catholic and Protestant upbringing. Can you talk about maybe your experience with religion as you were younger and how did it get you both into philosophy and maybe uh, also studying uh, Jewish studies? Sure. Yeah. Um, that's a really rich question. So I was raised in a, in an evangelical home and I mean it's it's about as it's about as rigidly or it was about as rigidly um theocratic I guess as you can possibly imagine um when I say that what I mean is I I think I was probably 4 or 5 the first time I heard that I was destined for hell <laughs> and 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 had that described very vividly to me uh what that was going to be like uh i i mean it is honestly it's one of my earliest memories um mm -hmm. and it's a it's a terrifying th and the funny thing is that like i i i remember the the person who came and gave that sermon at our church this was like a friday night retreat for children this guy was an evangelist who talked 
two children. Mm. <laughs> and, and I remember being told, you know, if you walk out this door and you haven't accepted Christ as your savior and you're hit by a car, which was never going to happen in this town of like 30 people, but, uh, <laughs> you're hit by a car and you die, you're damned to hell for all eternity. And that's a terrifying thing mm. to, um, you know, to try to internalize when you're, when you're that young. Uh, and, and so I lived under the shadow of that growing up, you know, that, mm. that, that terror of, uh, of hell. So that's, I mean, that's certainly an important part of my, my biography. I think um, it's not to say that my, my father wasn't a loving man because he was, but, also, with all of these other elements, like we were not allowed to listen to literally any music in the house that was not gospel, like even contemporary Christian music was was uh, verboten. I mean, it was, um, you know, if it sounds like the devil's music, it can't possibly be, you know, uh, good. Right. Uh, we were taught that the King James Bible was the only English translation of the Bible that you could read. Uh, oh. any others were, you know, were, were going to, well, actually, you know, a lot of the other ones were from the devil himself. Mm. So, um, you know, it was, it was a very strange dynamic because then I would, I, I would spend my weekends there. And then at my mom's house, you know, even though my mom, I, I would say at her core was kind of an evangelical. She was much more laissez-faire when it came to um, what I was allowed to do and what I was allowed to listen to. Uh, that cycled some, you know, she had her moments when she got really, really rigid about things. But, but you know, I would watch R-rated movies and horror films and things like this and listen to metal and, and uh, hip hop and stuff. Um, and then I'd go to, so I knew about this way of life. And then I would go to my father's and, and absolutely nothing was allowed. I remember, I remember one time when I was a kid, I, I was like five and I had you, we used to call them muscle shirts, you know, where the mm -hmm. sleeves were cut off. Of course, yeah. I had no muscles, but it was, you know, a cut off shirt and it, it had like a skull and crossbones with fire in the eyes. And it said, rock and roll will never die. And uh, and I I was wearing that at my dad's house when I was like five and I was made to feel shame for wearing mm -hmm. it and, and it made to change it because we were going to see my grandfather and he didn't want my grandfather to see me uh, wearing this shirt. And so I, I really began to internalize that sense of shame, you know, and, mm -hmm. uh, and that's something I think I still, I still, it's, it's still part of my mental health construct today, I, I believe. <laughs> um, you know, well, yeah, I'll just ahead, say sorry. quickly, in my case, I, I have a lot of similar experiences. My, my parents were far more liberal, I think, in terms of the, the sort of content that I was allowed to consume, although there, you know, this sort of like penumbra of like religious folks, you know, whether it's my neighbors or other relatives, you know, just kind of always edging into that a bit. I, I mean, even my bus driver, my bus driver was the sexton at the local Lutheran church. And like in middle school, I was wearing like an Egyptian onk or something oh. like that, a medallion. And one day as I was getting onto the bus, he grabbed me by the onk and pulled me in and said, you know what this is? This is of the devil. And he's like, you got to take this off. And then, you know, he just kind of threw me to the back of the bus. Um, yeah, my, my, my parents, they, they had friends who were in a car accident where their car flipped off an overpass but landed on its wheels. And they had like a religious conversion experience. And because of that, we had all this literature always dumped off on us. Like, Pat Robertson, 700 Club, 
The book was 200 Answers to Life's Most Probing Questions. And I this just, just sat in the bar in our basement for ages until like one day in eighth grade, I picked it up and I'm going through it and just being, you know, just the guilt was piling on me. And that was kind of in... Uh, it was kind of a trigger in a way that sort of instigated me to think philosophically like, well, am I damned, you know, or what actions, you know, look good in the eyes of God or, you know, is this even real? But anyway, I'll let you go on. No, that's, that's exactly right. That was, I I think that over time, as I wrestled with certain elements of that, you know, I I became more, more self-reflective, I think. Um, Mm. That was certainly part of it. Some of the things that woke me up were like, I I can remember, I don't know how, I don't know how exactly this happened. I don't remember when exactly it happened, but I remember reading the Genesis story and uh, chapter three, when it says, you know, and, and the serpent, you know, this chapter three is the famous narrative of the fall. And, and it says, and the serpent was the the most cunning and, and wily of all the creatures or something like this. And the serpent of course goes to Eve and says, you know, so what, what about that fruit? Why don't you eat that fruit? And she's like, oh, no, we can't have that. And, you know, he, and she's like, you know, God told us we're going to die. And, and the serpent said, you're not going to die. You know, God knows that if you eat that, you're going to you're going to see things like he sees things. Um, and it's interesting because there, two things from that story. When I was a kid, I remember being told in like Sunday school or something, Satan was the first or the sorry, the serpent was the first liar. Right. That that was the first lie ever told. But I remember like reading it and then you read just a few verses later and God says the humans have become like us. So the serpent wasn't lying at all. The serpent was telling the truth. God doesn't want you to eat the fruit because you will see things the way that God sees them. And so that's sort of like at some point I realized that and I was like, well, that's not a lie. That's a fact. Right. That's a saying something true. But secondly, the other thing that sort of jarred me a little bit was. I was just told matter of factly that this is the devil and you read the story and nowhere is the devil mentioned. It's just Mm -hmm. the serpent. So Mm -hmm. I began to think, well, there's gotta be a story for, you know, how it is that we come to just accept that, you know, this is the devil and and how does that happen? And so this was another thing. It's like, there were things that were sort of embedded in the, the Sunday school narratives that when you're young and you just sort of defer to your adult authorities, you know, you might not question, but as you start to get a little older, you start to think, well, I don't know, maybe that doesn't quite make sense. And so, you know, there were little things like that, that I think sort of led me down the rabbit hole of trying to, you know, think more deeply and ask, you know, more probing questions about these, um, these, these things that I had always accepted. Um, and then I, you know, I, uh, on the machine unconscious, I told the story about, you know, learning about the ancient Greeks and, uh, and, and asking my father. So, you know, all of these people who lived in the ancient world who weren't Jews and who weren't, uh, you know, privy to the story of Christ, are they just going to hell? And my dad said, well, yeah. yeah. You know? <laughs> and it's like, well, that doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense. And, and so this, uh, this was, that was a f- sort of formative moment too. Just a lot of little things like that, um, yeah. that sort of jarred me, uh, jarred me to, alertness, I think. Yeah. I, and I think, uh, yeah, we could probably just regale everyone with tales of this for the next hour and 20 minutes. But with that said, let, let's just kick off the question. So in historical terms, who was Satan? Where did he come from? Um, I, as, as I understand it, and one thing that you flesh out quite nicely in the, um, in, in the lecture series is that 
Satan shifts or the figure of, of the devil shifts from the Hebrew Bible to the Christian Bible, Old Testament to New Testament. So maybe that's a place to start and, and, and maybe you could kind of get us on the right track. Yeah, it's this was one of the things that I, I found really fascinating, uh, you know, in the opening of the lecture series, like I talk about the fact that my grandfather had this this encyclopedia and I saw this picture of this devil figure. And it's the same picture that we're all familiar with, the horns, the, you know, the uh, the hoof, the cloven hooves, the, you know, the hairy legs, the pitchfork, all that stuff. Right. And that's never described in the Bible either. So it's just like, well, OK, where did this come from? And this is one of the things that led to the lecture series that led to my interest in it. And it, its origins are actually, you know, um, Mesopotamian, which is, you know, the origin of the biblical myths themselves, um, the earliest biblical myths themselves. And so I, I was reading this book. I can't remember the author's name, but it's it's the the myth of the adversary, basically. And essentially what Satan does or what the adversarial figure does is he allows us to give an account for the uh, the aspects of life that we're not particularly keen on or whatever, right? In the Mesopotamian origins, you had this sort of adversarial figure in their cosmic myths. The adversarial figure was, uh, you know, someone who um, – uh, you know, was just like a powerful figure that that the heroes would try to conquer or something like that. Um, it, very often these descriptions would have, you know, they would describe these creatures as being sort of leonine, but also serpentine. They'd have scales. They might have wings. Um and then in some of the some of the later Mesopotamian myths, they're they're more explicitly serpentine, more like a dragon or something like this. And so then you get into the Hebrew Bible, and and I, I I think it's because of those associations that you know at some point in the Hebrew tradition, uh, the myth you know of the serpent does become associated with the sort of satanic figure because the ancient adversarial figure was itself sort of serpentine. Mm -hmm. Now you think about the world in which these people are living, right? What is one of the things you're going to be afraid of? Snakes, right? You're going to you're going to be leery of snakes. And why are they cunning? Well, because some might bite you on the toe and it's fine, and then some might bite you on the toe and you're fucking dead in a few, you know, in a few minutes, right? They're they're wily. They're they're they're, you know, you got it. They're shifty. You got it. And look at how they slither. I mean, it's almost like they're not moving, but they are moving. So you think about this world in which these folks live and these things are embodiments of danger, embodiments of, of, of uh, you know, of, of uh, threat. Right. Um, and then another thing that you find in the ancient Hebrew Bible is this association with water. Okay, you think about what are the first things that God does? He separates the waters above from the waters below. He separates the, the dry earth from from the wet. What is the first destruction of the earth? It's a flood. You think about the precarity in which these ancient people lived, the, the fact that you rely upon water so much as uh, as the principle of life, as the source of your life, probably as a source of commerce. And yet at the same time, if you're not careful or, you know, under the right circumstances, this thing can also destroy your 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 village. It can kill your family. So water, too, becomes uh, associated with this adversarial force. And God is seen as the Hebrew God is seen as the person who keeps that, 
you know, at bay. That's the first thing he does is he brings order out of chaos. He brings dry land out of water. Right. And when he gets pissed, he destroys the, the world with water. Um, okay. So how does the figure shift? What starts to happen in the um, later, let's say around the period of the Babylonian captivity? Leading up to this, if you read the ancient Hebrew scriptures, the way in which the ancient Jews thought about their relationship to to God, right, to, to Yahweh, uh, and their relationship to life. If you read Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Pentateuch, right, or the, the Torah, uh, it, it basically – it's very direct. It says if you lead a good life, you will have a good life, right? If you – Adhere to God, if you adhere to the law, if you adhere to the principles that are laid out here for you in the Torah, you will have prosperous commerce, you will have pro, you know a bountiful harvest, you will have a family that loves and respects you, you will be revered in your community, you will have children who grow up to be also revered in their community. This is the idea. Live a good life, have a good life. If you turn away from that, uh, you will you will suffer. You will bring suffering upon yourself. But the point is, there's nothing in this story about you know live a shitty life and then you'll you'll be you'll be rewarded in the eternal retirement home in the sky. It's live a good life now, have a good life. And for a time during ancient Hebrew history, that seemed like that's what was happening, right? You get King David who establishes the sort of political and military might of the, the ancient kingdom. You get King Solomon who then sort of piggybacks on that and establishes a strong economic uh, presence of Israel in the ancient world. So for a time, that's sort of how the Hebrews saw themselves is, that's right, we are God's people. We've we've been faithful to God, and now uh, or as a result, we are prosperous, the same sort of narrative you hear amongst the evangelicals today, right? Well, if we turn back to God, you know, then then God's going to bless us. But until we do, right, it's the same, it's the same exact mentality. But then what starts to happen with the uh, with the shift or sorry, the weakening of the kingdom and then ultimately the Babylonian captivity where, where you know, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's forces come in and just destroy the city, uh, d destroy the temple, take a large portion of the Hebrews uh, captive, slaughter a lot of them, right? Now the question becomes, okay, we thought we were doing everything correctly, right? We thought we were living according to God's, you know, laws. A and yet somehow he's, he's upset with us. He, this, you know, how do you make sense of this? The book of Job uh, addresses that question exactly. The book of Job is probably written around this time. Job is an upright, uh, honest, righteous man, and yet he suffers. How does the book of Job begin? It begins with Ha Shatan, the Satan. The Satan is just an adversarial figure. And if you read the book of Job at the very beginning, when Ha Shatan enters the heavenly court, you know, if you think about this, this is Satan walking into the court, right? But it's because he's not yet the Satan that we know. He's a sort of adversarial figure. He's almost like a prosecuting attorney. It's like he goes up to God and God says, hey, where you been? And he's like, oh, you know, coming and going, toing and froing, you know, uh, visiting the world of human beings. And God's like, hey, check out my guy, Job. He's a pretty good guy, right? And Hashatan, the adversarial, you know, prosecuting attorney says, of course, he's a good guy. You've given him everything. Take that away from him and watch how how it goes. And what does God do? God says, OK, 
I give you permission. And that's what happens through the course of the book of Job is that Job has virtually every good thing in his life ripped away from him, right? And then he spends the next several chapters complaining and, 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 and whining. And at the end, uh, God manifests and just says, look, you're not God. I am. So buck, buck up, right? So that's the role that the, the Hashatan, or, you know, Hashatan the, 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 the adversary, plays there. As Israel is returned from captivity, right, then for a moment, which they're led out of captivity by Cyrus of Persia, for a moment, they start to think, OK, we're back, baby. We're, you know, we're, we're on the rise again. We're on the ascent. But then they start getting their asses handed to them by all sorts of other imperial forces, the Macedonians and the Romans. Right. And and then it's like, OK, this is not making sense. What begins to emerge now is what we call the you know, this is in the 400s, 300s BCE, the apocalyptic tradition in uh, in Hebrew thought. And the apocalyptic tradition now has to say, OK, we have to somehow make sense of the fact that we have lived life as God has commanded us to live. And yet nothing is working out for us. So how do we do that? We tell uh, a story of you know a cosmic history it's not it's no longer just about live a good life have a good life now it's there's a cosmic story right from beginning to end and this figure of hashatan becomes far more prominent as a thorn in the side of god who is derailing god's plan temporarily and the forces of worldly power are seen as aligning with the force of the Satan, right? And so little by little, that becomes, you know, apocalypsis, ap apocalypsis is the Greek word for revelation, which is where we get, you know, the book of Revelation in the uh, new, at the end of the New Testament. But there were tons of these apocalyptic myths, right, that incorporated elements of the ancient Mesopotamian, ad, uh, ancient Mesopotamian adversarial figures. They, uh, they, they are the ones who declared the serpent to be Satan, right? And so the idea is God created this, this wonderful earth, put us on it. We, we fell prey to the temptation of Satan. Satan lured us off the path. And now all of this death and destruction has come in its wake. Satan is aligned with all the forces of global politics. Uh, and that's the way it's going to be for some time. And eventually this figure is going to come along named Messiah, who's going to liberate us from all this, you know, defeat the forces of Satan once and for all and restore uh, God's, you know, righteous plan for uh, for earth and heaven, a new new Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth and this kind of thing. And that's the world into which Christianity is born. And I'll pause there. You know, I, I've said a lot, so I'll pause there and let you. No, that's great. And um, I'll just say that, you know, just give a, a quick plug for your lecture series. What I really enjoyed about this is um these are facts that are just rolling around, you know, the brains of anybody who's been immersed in Western literature for their whole life. And you just concatenate these so nicely. Like even that, that little story there gives us a sense of, you know, okay, this is what the history was like from, you know, Judaica and, uh, until now. Um, but anyway, I want to get other voices in the discussion. Maybe sure. Adam or Will has uh, something they want to ask or comment on. 
Um, so I'll, I'll ask the first question and of course it'll be politically oriented. Um, I guess every question is politically oriented when it comes to theology, right? That's the secret. Sure. Um, <laughs> in fact, Carl Schmidt is exactly wrong, but, um, um, so, so, uh, you, you're speaking very interestingly at the beginning of your lecture series, which first of all, like what I really love about it is that it's operating in two different registers. It's like the academic equivalent of the, si- the Simpsons, right? Where the graduate <laughs> student can go in with all the, the pomposities and it's like, oh, mythos, logos, I can follow this, right? But at the same time, you have, you don't need any of this to connect right. with, um, sort of the, the, the broader thrust of the, um, so literally like, uh, you know, someone like Adam or a neophyte like me, we could both equally swim in this water, which is oh. nice. So I really appreciate that about the lecture series. Thank you um, very much. But one thing that I want to ask you just call me an adept of Satan. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, but uh, so I, I want to ask a question about the relationship between Satan and earthly power, right? Because in Augustine, what we get is this idea of the two churches, right? One that is aligned with earthly power, with the parochial, and one that is aligned with the city of God, right? That's one of the more quiet elements of, um, of, of the, uh, the broader thrust of uh, take a shot every time I say that uh, argument in fundamental Augustinian accounts of, of the function of liturgy in the church. But uh, one of the more interesting things that you open with about Satan is you decide to open with the problem of evil, right? <laughs> Which it, it sits kind of at the rotting core of everything from, you know, theories of hypostases to, um, you know, the notion of God's providence, right? What can, what does God do and not do, right? Like Aquinas famously says, like, <laughs> has, has to d- build an entire complicated angelology, right? Mm-hmm. In order to produce this providence. But what's so interesting is God creates this beautiful earth and reigns over it. And yet, does not govern right like it's not it's it's not a governing position and in fact once you cede to earthly power that's precisely when the satanic as such can sort of seep in so i'm wondering what's the relationship because so much of what has to do with the cosmic order right is this fundamental alteration of time of space uh, you know, Christ's breath dissipates everything, all structures, all order, but hell remains the same, right? Hell remains the same. And what's the fundamental thing um, about the parochial earthly power? What's the thing that is the most important, f- f- whether it be the state, the church, uh, the political party? Sustainability, right? Mm-hmm. To sustain yourself uh, indefinitely, right? Um, Foucault writes extensively about how uh, there's this one moment when the coming uh, the coming kingdom finally dissipates in structures of of theology and then starts to dissipate politically, right? And that's when the maximization of state forces starts to become the new uh, the new kind of liturgical practice uh, in security, territory, and population. And I'm wondering what is the relationship between the problem of evil and uh, the way in which Satan interacts with the church as a political body, 
right? Does does Satan does Satan speak to the Catholic uh, in a way that complicates their relationship to liturgy, their relationship to the church, their relationship to the papacy? Um, like, is is Satan not just a pro? Is Satan not just a a, a proposed answer? to the problem of evil, but also a proposed answer to the problem of the church as such. That's a really interesting, can you, can you just expand on that last question, that the way that you just said that, can you expand that just a bit? As, as millenarianism kind of starts to, to dissipate, right. And mysticism shifts, right. I think Hildegard von Bingen is a good indicator of this, right. Where like it's, it's to build the church in such a way that it can face off with the devil, right? Um, whereas, you know, prior to that, uh, we see mysticism as closer to a sort of gnosis, right? It's completely outside the expanse of the church. So I'm wondering, is there a relationship between the church's new function as becoming like a militaristic institutional body that must face off with the devil that is at the same time condemning it to participate in the devil's own sense of temporality, the devil's own relationship to earthly power, the devil's own. So like, is this a solution to the very problem of the vocation of the church as such? That's yeah, that's a, okay. That's an excellent question. So uh, there's a lot to unpack there. So the first, so the problem of evil, okay. That's, you know, that's a that's a philosophical shorthand for, you know, if if God is, you know, all all powerful, all knowing uh, and morally perfect, then how can there be suffering? Um, uh, And it's a question that occurs to everyone at some point in their lives. Right. Uh, Even a child who's raised in church, you know, uh, you know, the first time someone gets sick, the first time someone they love dies, the first time they see some news story with some awful thing, they're like, well, why does God let this kind of thing happen? And so. That's in a certain sense. I talk. You, you brought up the mythos and logos thing uh, from the first or second lecture, um, because we we tell these stories about our lives. We narrativize our our purpose, uh, you know, our place in the world, the 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 meaning of life, and our place in it, or something like this. Um, okay, when things seem to be going well, that's not as much of a problem for you, you know, philosophically. When things start to come undone, that's when it becomes more and more of a problem. Uh, so in, in Jewish history, this is the, the period during which um, their worldly power, their world, their, their, their status as a, a worldly representation or a worldly embodiment of God's providence, God's majesty, God's righteousness, when that begins to wane, now they've got to reconstruct the mythos. And the, and, and the mythos gets reconstructed in such a way that Satan becomes the you know, the force of the world. And I said, you know, just before, uh, Will, you, you uh, went into your line of questioning, I was talking about this is the world into which Christianity is born. This is the world into which Christ as a prophetic messianic figure, and, you know, he's just one. There were several other messianic figures around in his day, but this is the world into which he is emerging. This is the world in which Christ says my kingdom is not of this world. Christ says that because he's part of this apocalyptic tradition that sees uh, the institutions of worldly power as as you know replete with corruption and and uh, and greed and uh, and lust and and bloodthirst and all of these things. 
he's part of that tradition who says, no, it's not going to be what, you know, it's not, we're not, God's kingdom is not going to be established by way of these worldly institutional forces. It's going to have to come about through transformations of of our spiritual life, right? The kingdom of God, one of the passages that I think sort of sneaks in there that that maybe the church fathers didn't want in there or, or maybe would have thought better of is when he says the kingdom of God, if anyone tells you the kingdom of God is coming here or there or at this time or at that time, they're lying to you because the kingdom of God is not something that comes with, you know, uh, in temp, you know, in, in worldly historical temporal terms, as you, as you so well described it, Will, um, it's 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 within you. Right. And so he's preaching a sort of spiritual liberation, not something that takes up uh, the forces of, of worldly power. Uh, but the thing is, right, once, uh, you know, once the fervor of that revolutionary teaching starts to sort of, you know, starts to sort of uh, die down a little bit, then you've got the the question of, OK, well, how do we. How do we live in this world, right? Because the the earliest church fathers, you know, they would very, you know, they would disappear into the desert, into the caves, and they were, you know, they were mystics, right? As as you as you pointed out, and that mystical, you know, they, you know, they lived the monastic life. So the question is, is that what we do? And the church, the church responds by saying. Well, maybe not. Maybe we want to be maybe we want to start making allegiances with uh, the devil. Right. Maybe we start. we want to start making a little earthly power as a treat, a a little (laughs) earthly power. And that's how we're going to, you know, uh, that's how we're going to defeat Satan. We're going to defeat Satan. We're going to help Christ on his, uh, you know, mission of ushering in the uh, the kingdom. Right. We're going to do it by going to people's you know villages and their houses and saying hey you either get baptized or we will run your family through with swords right uh you either accept you either accept the love or we're going to fucking kill you right um and so yeah i mean it 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 creates this sort of this sort of paradox because they still speak you know the church still speaks in the language of worldly power, but they're they're co-opting worldly power at, at, at every single turn. Um, yeah, so that's 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 where I'll pause. I, I you know I I hope that sort of addresses the question a little bit. Okay, <laughs> and it also gave me it gave me a great chance to, to just whack in that Anton Levesque <laughs> Anton Levesque quote there. It's. Uh, anyone who's had a black metal phase has had a copy of LeVay flowing around somewhere. We just lost Craig a bit, but it's okay. It gives me some time to talk about a question I had, which I, I really particularly loved the way in which you problematized the idea of personifying evil in this force, and particularly for the work of Joyce Carol Oates. Yeah. And, particularly this, and I really want to ask something about, is there something as do you think in the history of the development of the character of Satan, particularly when Satan becomes personified, um, moving from a, you know, a personified function in the angelic court towards an actual, you know, old Nick, the actual, the Lord of Flies, he becomes the Baal in that sense. Is, is there an inherent, insofar as the devil is meant to explain earthly power, does that mean that in a way it's also an earthly masculine power? Of course, there have been feminine depictions of Satan, or at least a, a gender non-conforming depiction of a Satan, most famously, of course, the Baphomet, the Goat of Mendes, which has both masculine and feminine characteristics. But I just wanted to ask about the, the essential 
uh, or the question of an essential masculinity to the satanic, particularly through this this brilliant discussion of you know, where you're going and where have you been by Joyce Carol Oates. Not not of course to spoil the entire lecture series. I mean, yeah. for example, I mean, if it, I mean, in, if people want to follow up on the question of earthly power as well. Go to lecture Verne did on this, and uh, Dostoevsky is the Grand Inquisitor because yeah. that is a, a perfect continuation of that. But particularly on this question of masculinity, I'm really interested to do a, a bit more about that. Yeah, that's a good. That's a fantastic question. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. So I guess it's. I guess my answer would be that it's in a sense it's complicated. Uh, well, no, it, it is complicated, of course. But yes. So the short answer is yes, uh, there is a sort of essential masculinity because – and I guess you could in a certain sense um, – you might even say a, an essential whiteness, right? In the sense that this is the you know the mm. heart of the global power structure, white supremacism and, and masculinism and patriarchy and misogyny. Um, uh, so – Yes, there is there is that. The, the interesting thing about the Joyce Carol Oates story, uh, and it's been a while since I've read it. It's a it's a really it's a it's a short read. I think you can find it online. It's not it's not that long. It's not mm -hmm. that complicated, but it's really good. And there was actually a movie which I have never seen that had Laura Dern in it that was made inspired by the Joyce Carol Oates story, which I think is available on the Criterion Collection. But the uh, the way in which that story works, it's 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 really, really fascinating because this guy pulls up at the home of the um, oh, I can't remember the, the the young woman's name. She's 15 or 16. And his name is Arnold Connie. Friend. Connie. That's right. That's right. Thank you. Uh, and and his name is Arnold Friend. And he sort of, you know, he parks outside her her house. Uh, he She had already seen him at like the mall or something a few nights before. And he kind of points at her and says, going to get you, baby. He parks outside of her house and, you know, she comes out onto the porch and he just sort of like he basically through attrition wears her down. Right. It's he never comes right out and says, you know, uh, I'm going to do X, Y and Z if you don't get in the car. But it's this she threatens to call, you know, the 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 police or something or her family. And he's like, you're not going to do that uh, if you, uh, you know. You, uh, trust me, you don't want to do that. And eventually he just wears her down to the point that she gives in. And so one of the points that I, I think I make in the uh, lecture series um, is that, you know, on the one hand, as Will brought up a moment ago, we talk about the philosophical problem of evil almost in very abstract terms, right? Oh, well, mm. why is there suffering? You know, from the perspective of you know, of of women subject to the masculinist power structure, the problem of evil is a very concrete, everyday, real, in your face uh, problem. Right? It's it's there in you know every encounter with a man that takes place in a dark alley or on a street or something like that, where it's just the two of you. Uh, it's, it's there in the uh, relations of power between male professors and female students, right? It's, it's always lurking there. That, that problem of evil is always lurking there. And so um, I think that that's what that story brings out really, really well is it's like, you know, through so much of this, you know, discussion, we talk in very abstract terms. This is a very concrete thing. And what ultimately does Connie in 
is the fact that he uses all of these narratives of masculinist power to basically wear her down. We see that those structures of power in her family before she ever you know, gets in the car. There's the discussion of how her mom sort of has this love-hate relationship with her because you know she's young and she's she's so you know pretty and and her mom feels older and and you know sort of worn down um and so you know there's this love-hate relationship because of course she loves her daughter but at the same time she's jealous at all the possibility that her daughter you know brings to her or brings you know brings to her own experience um and it's the it's the it's the it's the narrative of the power structure itself that ultimately wears her down and that itself is satanic and but to your you know, another response would be it's really interesting as well because there is a certain masculinism, but there's also a certain masculinist depiction of femininity that's woven into the satanic as well. In the sense that if you've ever seen, like for instance, the the Keanu Reeves um, Al Pacino film The Devil's Advocate, right? Um, there's this seductiveness, this sexual sultry seductiveness to the devil, right? Played by Connie, uh, you know, in, in that particular film, Connie Nielsen um, plays like the the, the temptress. Um, the uh, Aquinas talks about, you know, how Eve is kind of the temptress. Mm. She's the one that the devil kind of, you know, um, you know, the devil gets to her and then she gets to Adam. And what does Adam say? Adam says, well, it's not my fault. It's the woman that you put here. Right. She's the one who who gave me the fruit. And so there is also woven into that sort of masculinism. There is a certain sense in which the 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 feminine is painted as as inherently tempting and, and and as luring the you know the 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 man off the path of righteousness such that um you know we still today we still today in 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 churches and i was just fighting on twitter with someone about this you know we 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 very often blame young women when they are you know when they are the victims of sexual abuse, well, what were you, you know, what were you doing that led this man, this this poor, you know, man to, you know, to uh, to do this? What what must you have been doing? Um, and so, woven into mm. that masculinist structure, there is a sort of uh, a perverted, a perverse, I should say, um, depiction of femininity as satanic as well. It almost absolutely, and you, and. You Oh, oh, sorry. And I just want to highlight as well. You you bring this up very well, actually, in your discussion of the 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 witch hunts, the malleus yes. maleficarum. Because yes. not only do you point out that the the trans the Latin itself is gendered, but even when it comes to the idea of blame for possession, because surely you can't be blamed if 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 they, if they are supposedly the weaker sex, then how are they more blameworthy? But nonetheless, right. the twisting of that panic nonetheless it, it builds in a some sort of double guilt and it's it's yeah the the, the whole question of the the double bind yeah. of, of 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 gendering in the in this in this kind of blame game of, of, of the satanic is absolutely like one of the things i really appreciate most about the series oh well thank you and and, and i was thinking about this uh, in in thinking about this this conversation in rosemary's baby which is a really interesting film from a very problematic, you know, director, right? Um, but as 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 we see in the in the in the rape scene, when the you know in her in her you know in her drug stupefied state, um, when the satanic figure is is assaulting her, right? What is she doing? She is asking the Pope for forgiveness, right? Um, she is accepting, in a sense, that sort of you know that blame of being of being raped, right? Um, yeah, yeah. 
appreciate yeah, so, the question. So there seems to be, but this this maintains itself outside of theology too, right? So like, sure, and and finds itself, I think, almost perfectly articulated in nineteenth century psychiatry with the phenomenon of the hysteric, which is then sort of transmuted back into a kind of theological approach to subjectivity. In and I'm going to piss some people off. Uh, psychoanalysis is approach to hysteria too, right? Um, like, and this is maintained. So I'm wondering, like, all of this challenges our approach to to the way in which the philosophical notion of agency manifests, right? So there's this, there the fall, um, and you know the predestination of of this. This is so embarrassing that I don't even remember what how many angels fell or anything like that. My theology professors are going <laughs> to be crying. Um, like all of this pertains to a kind of approach to agency, which is always when per, when in relation to to discursive and non-discursive formations of earthly power, um, selective uh, and deployed. Agency is always uh, uh, always deployed in relation to this evil. Um, and I'm wondering, in what ways can our approach to the history of Satan inform a critical relationship to the notion of will, uh, to the notion of capacity, and to this concept of command in philosophy? Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, concept of command. Well, I'll start somewhere, and, and if I get sidetracked, you can, you can rein me back in. Um, it's a really interesting – let's let's go straight to the heart. Let's go straight to the source, right? Um, I remember when I was in the when I was in the Bible Belt and I was teaching, um, you know, intro to philosophy, say, and we would talk about the problem of evil. Uh, I would very often get – I was in Indiana and uh, I was – at one point I was teaching at Kokomo and some of these people were, you know, commuters who were taking a humanities class. I would very often get the answer, the response that I was given when I was young, which is, well, uh, why is there suffering? Well, God didn't plan it that way, right? God planned it to be, you know, uh, this blissful paradise. It was Adam and Eve who screwed everything up. Well, there's all kinds of philosophical problems packed into saying Adam and Eve screwed everything up. But one of the chief ones among them, and I, I used to say this to my students, is, so wait a second. You, that means you think one of two things. You think either, you know, God creates Adam and Eve, they sin, and then God goes, holy shit, I didn't see that coming. Well, fuck, what am I going to do now? You know, I got to, now I got to, well, fuck, fuck, I guess I'll have to send my son down to fix things in, in a few thousand years. Jesus Christ, you know. You either think that, which doesn't sit well with your understanding of how God works, right? Or you think that was part of the plan to begin with, or at least God, at the very, very least, God knew it was going to happen and did it anyway, right? Uh, which means in some sense, it's got to be part of the plan. Um, and so it does create this really interesting paradox having to do with, uh, with the notion of agency and of will, because if I am as God made me, am I, you know, uh, when I'm doing evil things, am I, am I acting out of the nature that God has, you know, created me with or, uh, you know, or not? And if I am, then how can I be held personally accountable for this? Leibniz, you know, is wrestling with this question 
magnificently in uh, monadology and in uh, theodicy and the idea you know that he wants to put forth is that yes god created all these little monads that have to sort of interact or they don't interact but they have to sort of manifest and uh and deflate let's say um in tandem with all the rest and yes everything about the entire history of the cosmos including every single sin that you will ever commit is baked right into the concept of you uh, such that it's not possible for you to not sin in the ways that you will in fact sin. And yes, God created that. Nonetheless, it comes from your nature and that makes it yours, which, you know, creates all these sorts of weird questions about, well, then in what sense is my will free? And Leibniz would say, well, it's free because it comes from you. Well, yeah, but it comes from me, but it comes, that comes from God, right? So it creates all of these interesting, interesting questions. I feel like I didn't really answer your question though, Will. No, you totally did, right? Because at the, at the core of this, right, ends up being that possession ends up so so this is that passage from from witch hunt to possession that's so important right and 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 again this brings us back to the question of subjectivity of security of earthly power right because what there's one really fucking weird diversion in Foucault's security territory and population lecture which is what the 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 beginning of him taking seriously this question of biopolitics there's this strange shift for one for one week and what is it to possession Right. Because what is at the core of possession? The problem of the direction of subjectivity. What is at the core of what is at the core of the question of subjectivity for the Christian? Metanoia. What is at the core of metanoia? Confession. Right. Uh-huh. Your ability uh-huh. to confess and uh-huh. to give an account uh-huh. of yourself and to and to submit yourself to what? To earthly power. Exactly. Right? And I'm sorry that I go in circles with Foucault. I apologize. No. It's what I no, do. No, it's great. If only, if only it registered better at the academic level. <laughs> but, but yeah. So no, that's a perfect answer. And I, and oh, okay. like so, so I think yeah, like that is like I, look, I I totally know nothing about the history of Satan. Um, so this is this is like Satan and subjectivity seems like seems to me to be a completely necessary. Uh, and perhaps something that's even missing uh, in Foucault's accounts of the flesh, right? Oh, like, that's yeah, that's right? interesting. What, what is missing in the Confessions of the Flesh, which I just finished? Uh, yeah, a flushed out relationship to Satan. Yeah, that's really right? interesting. There's a paper there, Will. <laughs> <laughs> Probably Nikki Clements would be the right person to do that, not me. Uh, not me. So I'll 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 ask her to write that paper for me. <laughs> Well, um, for many Marxists, Foucault is already a satanic figure. So, <laughs> so Vernon, we're, we're about to get to a, a favorite topic of mine. Um, I remember there was a very specific memory that I had back in the 1980s, and we were growing up around that time. And I was advised in very strict terms never to truck with heavy metal. Dungeons and Dragons. Dungeons and Dragons. And Karl Marx. And I did all of those things. <laughs> and so what I'd like to talk about is uh, the satanic panic. And yes. uh, I mean, it's just such a fascinating like area of research. And what I really like in your lecture series, you bring up Michelle Remembers, which mm-hmm. is kind of like the incipient moment of satanic panic. But you you kind of put forward an argument and I mean, the, the whole lecture series, and I think just more broadly, we can look at the history of 
Satan and, and, and the legacy of Satan as being a continuity or a continuum, you know, that evolves over certain eras, epochs, centuries, decades, if you will. And, and there's an argument to be made that some of that same moral panic that was evoked at the time of not only Michelle remembers, but like the whole Dungeons and Dragons moment when they had that 60 minute special in the early 1980s. Maybe if you remember that, like the I dangers don't. of tabletop role playing games wow. and, and that sort of thing. No. Uh, definitely something to look into if you're if you're continuing on this path. But um, you you later then talk about like the whole Pizzagate thing and QAnon. Yeah. Maybe you could give us kind of an overview of the satanic panic phenomenon and tell us like like is some of that moral panic you know still ongoing today and and other kinds of uh, social movements and sort of political trends that we see. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, this is uh, one of the questions that you sent to me was, how did you get interested in this topic? And this was one of the catalysts for my getting interested in the topic uh, was, you know, the Pizzagate thing of late 2016, where um, the person shows up at uh, Comet Ping Pong with a gun, you know, and why? Because Alex Jones or someone on Alex Jones show was saying that Hillary Clinton was running a what a child sex ring, you know, satanic sex ring out of the basement of Comet Ping Pong or something. And my first thought when I heard this was like, wow, that's really fucking crazy, right? That's really, 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 really out there. Um, and I thought it was just a a sort of, you know, a one-off, <laughs> but it was not a one-off. Uh, it was indicative of a, um, it was indicative of a, a, much broader swath of the population than probably a lot of people would be comfortable in knowing, right? Um, and people that I love, people that I respect, people who are otherwise intelligent human beings bought into this. And so, uh, you know, bought into this idea of this global cabal. And, and I will say, and we can talk about this just a little bit more if, if someone wants to, but there's there's a kernel of of veracity to it, a kernel, a kernel. But this idea of the global cabal of Satanists, uh, you know, that the reason Nancy Pelosi is in her 80s and looks so young is because she drinks the blood of children, right? This, uh, you know, that there are these underground subterranean cities where children are kept in cages. Well, we've got fucking children in cages at the borders. Why aren't you worried about those kids? But kids in cages that the Democrats are bleeding and drinking their blood and offering to Satan and, and Hollywood is part of it and all of this stuff. Um, it's a it's a huge thing. And yeah, you can trace uh, you can trace that lineage back through the 80s, back through the 70s and into the 60s. And one of the things that sort of stood out to me when I was learning about this, this, this mythos, let's call it that this mythos was how much of it resonated or echoed many of the same stereotypes about Jews in the Middle Ages, right? The, you know, don't let your kids play after dark because the kids or the Jews are going to take them and offer them as satanic sacrifices and they're going to drink their blood and all of this stuff. And as Will pointed out, the same thing was said of the, the, the witches in Salem, right? These same tropes, these same stereotypes, uh, you know, people are going to harm your children. They're going to, you know, sexually assault and, and drink the blood of your children. There's this satanic cabal. Okay. So, this goes back, I think, the, the sort of current – the current panic, uh, which I do see as, as part of a lineage that begins in the 60s and continues up through today. Uh, and it goes to this point uh, that we've been talking about quite a bit, having to do with the politics of Satan, 
in the United States in the 1960s. Um, you know, the, the, the generation of people who were, say, my age in the 1960s, uh, you know, that was the generation that had, you know, uh, perhaps been on the tail end of the Great Depression, seen uh, World War II, seen the boys coming home from war, you know, been part of the baby boom, seen the industrial boom. Everything looked great for white working class people in, uh, you know, in, uh, and middle class people in the United States going into the 1960s. And then what happens in the 1960s? Well, black people get the right to vote, right? Uh, we have to start treating black people the same way, you know, according to the law, the same way that we treat white people. Women start burning their bras and asking for, you know, equal rights and stuff. So now the country starts going to hell in a handbasket. Uh and then, you know, there's this Time magazine uh, that's a response to the death of God theology. People like Thomas Altizer, who is a really fascinating, interesting figure in his own right. Um, but, the you know, the Time magazine cover in black, black background, great big, bold red letters is God dead. Right. And the, it's an interview with uh, with Altizer and with a lot of other theologians and stuff about the role of God in contemporary society. But what. The, the general atmosphere is all those middle class and working class white males, right, in the 60s and in the 70s are watching things change at a rate that they had, you know, never seen in their lives before, right? And so the idea is what are these forces that are, you know, these protests that are happening, you know, um, you know, women demanding uh, abortion rights and women demanding control over their birth control choices, their reproductive choices, uh, you know, everything is just changing so rapidly. So there's this underlying force that's sort of contributing to all of this. And so in the you know late 60s, you know, uh, Rosemary's Baby comes on the scene. And again, I, I really like that movie a lot. It's a fantastic, it's a really, really interesting movie. But it feeds into that narrative because Rosemary is, of course, you know, her husband is bound up with this uh, satanic cult. The satanic cult sort of runs things in this neighborhood. They're friends with the uh, the gynecologist, right? Even her gynecologist, who seems to be a semi-decent guy, you know, uh, is is beholden to the the you know Dr. Saperstein. He has to you know he has to defer to Saperstein everywhere she turns, right? All the power structures are um, you know suffused with satanic power. Right. That feeds that go that factors into this narrative. The birth of the Church of Satan and, Ant, you know, Anton LaVey's, um, you know, his his popularity, his, you know, his, you know, and he does sort of feed into the the, the media hype. He does. He does um, that, too. It's like, holy shit, there's an actual church of Satan. Right. There's you know, there are actual, you know, and it's misunderstood, but there are actual Satan worshipers. These are you know, this is a church. Right. Um and then we go into the 80s with Michelle Remembers, right? And Michelle Remembers is uh, – it's – what's his name? Larry Pazder, I think. Larry Pazder or Pazder or something like this. And he uh, you know, uses this, this, this method of treatment that is you know, now debunked, but it's like memory retrieval, right? And he, uh, he pulls out of Michelle's memory banks uh, these satanic rituals involving her mom, right? Um, and and I th – Maybe her – I think her parents, just her parents, her mom and her dad. Um, and, and, you know, and, and Michelle just sort of – according to the book at least, and they ended up getting married, this man and his patient. Um, 
uh, I can't remember Michelle's last name, but but pulls out of her all these satanic rituals that she was forced to endure as a child. And then in the narrative, you know, she has this whole thing where it culminates in 1955 um, in, a, in, a, in an actual fight in her house between the forces of darkness and the, and the forces of Christ. Christ, you know, vanquishes the forces of darkness from her life, heals all the scars on her body that she has endured. Uh, but the thing is that this this becomes like a phenomenon in the United States, right, where people are starting to take seriously that there are all these, you know, uh, all these forces that are harming their children. And this accompanies too, I think, as I say in the in the uh, the lecture series, accompanies a sort of generalized anxiety about the fact that women are going back are going to work. Right. So our children are, lo are no longer being raised by their mothers. They're being raised by strangers. And these strangers are themselves, you know, bound up in these satanic cabals. Right. The satanic cabal. And so um, th there's a sort of anxiety surrounding this. And 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 the idea is that ch your children are being threatened by these satanic forces. Then, you know, the Church of Satan, the is God dead, the death of God theology, all of this stuff sort of culminates then into the 80s, the, the popularity of Dungeons and Dragons, which I, too, played. Um, and then in 1985, Richard Ramirez certainly didn't help things at all. Richard Ramirez was the L.A. Night Stalker, right? Um, and when he was uh, finally brought in. Uh, he he called himself a fan of ACDC. He had pentagrams carved into his hand. He said, hail Satan in court. And so, you know, then the heavy metal gets sort of, you know, dragged into it. And, and we start looking at the things that um, <laughs> we start looking at the things that, uh, you know, uh, children are listening to. And, and I was listening to Twisted Sister. You're going to burn in hell. I was listening to Highway to Hell by ACDC. Hell's Bells by ACDC. Kiss, you know, and, and Gene Simmons is literally spitting fire on stage and spitting blood on stage and setting fires and all these things. And so uh, suddenly this this panic begins to to sort of take over uh, the American mindset. Um, parents are freaking out. My mom begins to freak out. She begins to say, you can't listen to KISS because it stands for Knights in Satan's Service. You can't listen to ACDC because it stands for uh, Against Christ, Devil's Children, some stupid shit like this, right? All these acronyms, WASP, we, uh, you know, we are Satan's people. I point out in the lecture series, WASP is actually a Christian band now, which is kind of funny, but, you know, we are Satan's people. Um, and that, that culminates in the late 80s with you know, I think Larry Pastor was on the Oprah Winfrey show, right? This is taken very seriously by a large chunk of people that there are subterranean satanic forces that are out there harming your children and you must protect them. Um, and then so, yeah, going into the 90s, that begins to subside a little bit, but only on the sort of surface level. It begins to go underground, and as the internet begins to take off, these pockets of this mythos begin to expand, right? And uh, and that culminates in you know the the QAnon phenomenon, the QAnon phenomenon, you know, being these Q drops, these ambiguous, extremely ambiguous, vague. Uh, drops that are, you know, dropped on 8chan, first 4chan and then 8chan about, you know, um, the the, the uh, 
about Trump's inner circle and about what Trump's doing to fight the global cabal. And then these people, the Q-tubers who become these sort of prophetic figures in their in their little circles of influence. There are conferences where they go and talk about, you know, Tom Hanks drinking the blood of children and stuff like this. Um, and that that mythos has is, is has endured to this day. And a lot of people who are otherwise intelligent people believe it. Yeah, I mean, if if drinking if drinking blood will keep uh, will keep a list actors with us, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember when Tom Hanks got COVID in like 2020? Oh, yeah. He, yeah. he got COVID. Yeah. All over the 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 internet was well. This is the the global elite. This is their their you know they're going to fake his death so he can get away with all the pedophilia he's been you know conducting all these years. I mean, this, this was is, one this, of the things that a, a lot of folks actually thought. This is the guy that signs his tweets like T. Hanks and takes a picture of a glove on the sidewalk. Like, <laughs> like I, exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and I remember in uh, your lecture series, you talked about how these Q-tubers would basically quit their jobs and, and yeah. receive just tons of donations. And that's why you should donate to Acid Horizon, our Patreon <laughs> channel, because I'm just imagining how deeply these folks were rolling in the dough. But um, I... I, we've already taken you over the hour, Vern. I definitely have one more question I'd sure. like to ask if you have time. Uh, anybody else have anything that they want to hop on? I will- I just, I'll say one thing quickly because I think it's just interesting to point out, particularly how, I mean, I, I really like how you point out with the evolution of the modern Satan, that the modern Satan in the way becomes a, a byword for challenging social reproduction. Because it's it eventually, rather than Satan being the world, rather uh-huh. Satan is the part of the world which stops the world from being reproduced. And if anything, mm-hmm. it's it's this incredible paradox where Satan mm-hmm. is. I mean, it's, you also talk about this with Milton's Satan. Satan is kind of unredeemable. He can't create anything. So how does he propagate like a Delurzo Batarian yeah. demon through us? Yeah. And, and he becomes the site of anything that is challenging social reproduction, which yeah. may, basically means targeting the family, targeting the child, you know, anyone listening to like anything of blast beats and going, like just anything <laughs> like that. It is, it is purely the, the panic of social reproduction and accelerating capitalist era. So I think that's, Perhaps you know, maybe Adam, Satan is, is coming back as an analytic tool. <laughs> Perhaps Adam, Satan is a very, very effective tool for the pseudo catacomb but we don't have to get into that right now. <laughs> well, there is one more question I'd like to ask you, Vernon, which is about the relationship between your research uh, with post-structuralism, mm-hmm. po- post-modernism, Deleuze, Derrida. Yeah. And I, I want to know if there's any intersections with the way you think about Satan or the, the devil. I, I mean, we we have a, a Thousand Plateaus reading group. We very recently read The Becoming Animal Plateau, mm-hmm. which features... Mm-hmm you know, Deleuze and Gattari's theory of like a transversal demonology, this sort of opposing social movement to the filiative of apparatuses that subjectivate us. So I, yeah. I think there's a definite note in their work where, where the devil or demons and witches come in. But is there a way that you think Deleuzeanly or Deridianly about the devil? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think in a certain sense, what Adam just described as as the devil being the thing that um, disrupts <laughs> that disrupts, uh, you know, uh, the social reproduction of the status quo as it is. I think that there's something very Deleuzean about that, you know, mobilizing, mobilizing that and, and in a way that's not unlike 
the way that Anton LaVey, you know, uses the figure of Satan as a sort of mythological, mythic, you know, embodiment of, you know, a rejection of those um, oppressive structures that he sees as bound up with uh, the monotheistic tradition. Um, And so I think it's in that plateau where he's talking about Lovecraft, for instance. Um, Lovecraft, or they, I should, damn it, I did it again. Deleuze and Guattari are talking about Lovecraft. And the Lovecraftian mythos and the Cthulhu mythos is this idea of these powerful beings of force that are pre-human and post-human. And the idea of uh, giving oneself over to giving oneself over to those uh those forces right or, or welcoming those forces as as um you know as as provocateurs of change of 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 becoming right um and and satan is interesting because he is precisely that thing he's always been in a certain sense that thing that disrupts the that that upsets the apple cart that you know whatever whatever it is that stands outside of white supremacism whatever it is that stands outside of patriarchy and misogyny that's what satan is right satan is the is the refugee satan is the the immigrant who's trying to come into the united states satan is the woman who's looking to you know to uh to liberate herself from an abusive uh loveless marriage right that's the force of satan and so in a sense yeah, there is this sense in which, from a Deleuze Guattarian perspective, the satanic is precisely that you know that welcoming of the uh, the forces of becoming that can disrupt and upset and and mobilize uh, you know forces of change. Um, and there's it's it's also really interesting, and this is related uh, in the simulacrum essay, um, the the Plato and the simulacrum essay in the appendix to the logic of sense, where he's talking about how the simulacrum, right? The, the thing that's so deadly about the simulacrum for Plato is precisely that it can fool you into thinking that it is the thing, right? The painting of the couch can make you think that it's a couch, um, you know, or, or, or what have you. That's what's so deceptive about it. The thing about Satan that's so problematic for much of the uh, church orthodoxy is precisely that Satan looks and acts like Christ, right? Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. That word antichrist that's used, I think, only one time in the in the New Testament, antichristu, that prefix anti um, means against, as we say, you know, I'm anti this, I'm anti that. But it also means in place of. It also means that which comes in place of. So the antichrist is that which comes in place of Christ. So the thing about Satan that's so problematic is that he can look in every way like like the church, like the uh, like the Christ himself. And so that mobilization of that force of liberation, I think, is is something that's very Delizagatarian. Yeah. And I think uh, this is just kind of a riff, but I'm, I'm thinking right now about the function of the concept of simulacrum, not only in Deleuze's work, but even in, in, in the shared way that Deleuze and Derrida confront binary thinking and mm-hmm. oppositional mm-hmm. thinking and the way that, you know, these stories about Satan, e- e- even the story of the serpent, you know, is tinged with this kind of uh, question or even an irony, like, well, was it really the serpent who told the truth and God who told the lie? And exactly. so, yeah, it kind of, you know, there's a way in which the way, you know, thinking through this non-oppositional or thinking about 
thinking non-oppositionally allows us to, you know, sort of, you know, get a sense of the contours or maybe, you know, kind of create a problematic around, you know, like, what's the problem with Satan? You know, <laughs> and what's the problem with this zizigi between Christ and, yeah. and, and Lucifer? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. With that said, um, Adam or Will, do you have anything to finish up on? Final comments? Well, I just wanted to point out, if, if you listen to the lecture series as well, there's a great discussion for listeners. Another reason to pick this up, of course, the many here is that you discuss, like, I really love how you discuss Pan and how Pan is <laughs> essentially the god of difference. And that's why he's so satanic. Yeah. So, God yeah. damn it. Now there's a Delors and the Devil book sitting there. Oh, uh, <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. Maybe it's a collaborative effort. We don't know. We can talk about that later. But Vernon, I just want to thank you again. You know, we've recommended The Devil, a biography to everybody here. <laughs> I mean, like, like I said, I just end up like piling up Audible credits and it's right yeah. there for six bucks or seven bucks. So yeah, um, I appreciate you, that very much. Thank yeah. You. If, you, if you want something great to listen to and, and, and this isn't, you know, this is not to discredit in any way, but like sometimes I try to listen to things like, Thus spoke Zarathustra on audiobook. And if you get distracted for a minute, you know, you, you're just lost. But you have such an engaging voice and and you speak in a register that's easy to kind of hang on. So um, I love it. Yeah, I love it. It's definitely worthwhile just for that alone. So I appreciate that very much. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And like I I certainly think that like there's just I don't know. I'm gonna say this as someone who's in grad school. I've found it super helpful for learning how to talk about these things oh wow so like if this is yeah. like if so for like grad students and students interested in going to grad school like especially in the united states where like providing presentations is going to be a huge part of it uh this is really helpful so just <laughs> pedagogically it's also a good tool like even if you don't give a single shit about the devil <laughs> uh it's super helpful so that's an immense honor i really appreciate that thank you that's a, that's a very kind thing to say all right. Well, take care and we'll see everybody next time. Thank you for having me. <laughs>